Don't, don't do drugs. Uh, unless prescribed by a doctor. Then make sure you do all the drugs. I don't know about that. But properly. Don't fail to finish your antibiotics, kids. Oh, okay, that's okay. That's how you make superbugs. Also, good to see you too, wholesome. What? <laughs> what was that lead? <laughs> Whoa! I said like three words. You're the one who went off on a tangent already. Uh, uh, Donnie Darko, man. Clearly, that thing is made entirely through drugs, right? Yeah, I heard they filmed that movie by turning a video camera into a bong. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Here's my question: Does that film have anything to say? Or is it just a bunch of nonsense and big bunnies? Isn't art, for art's sake, good enough for you? Are bunnies not good enough for you? Bunnies are almost always good enough for me, except when they're six foot tall nightmare creatures. Oh yeah, nightmare creatures. That's why we picked Donnie Darko. Welcome to spooky season. Even better that the film takes place exclusively in October. It's even more seasonal than I thought. Hey, by recording this in October. Are we somehow living in a tangent universe of Donnie Darko or something? I wouldn't say no. In fact, I think I feel a tangent theme song coming on. Don't be ever startled by a plate of knowledge Cause we got our game unlocked We'll any video Vici a mustachioed Nietzsche We'll never miss the marks Cause I'm wholesome He's heathen This is our podcast show Welcome back to your favorite philosophy podcast. Mm, not like people listen to a whole lot of philosophy podcasts. Still counts as their favorite. This is the show where we simplify philosophy. Yeah, philosophy cannot be simplified. It is high thought. The meaning of existence. You must understand. Yeah, we simplify all that mambo-jambo. And boy, are we <laughs> going to need it today. <laughs> I'm wholesome, and he's heathen. Word up. Don't. Don't do that. We're we're trying to pass you off as a philosopher, and I sure can't be the intelligent one here. So, dude, Donnie Darko makes no sense. I was counting on you to explain it to me. Mm, end of episode. Good one. <laughs> Good work. Good work. Nailed it. Go. Let's go home, team. Uh, well, at the very least, we can summarize the film with whatever coherent narrative I can parse here. All right. 80s teenager Donnie Darko, while hanging out in his room one night, is told by Frank to leave and go somewhere. While he's out, he's told that the universe will end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 6 seconds exactly. Didn't get into milliseconds, I guess. Not the most settling of things to be told. Even worse, we see that during his nighttime adventures, a jet engine crashes into Donnie's house and lands in his room. Lucky he wasn't there because he would most definitely have died a very strange death. Then the officials that come to assess the scene don't seem to know where the jet engine came from, which is extra weird. But Donnie goes about his high school life. He goes to classes, gets a girlfriend, becomes obsessed with time travel, tells a teacher to forcibly shove a book up her anus, you know, the usual. Can you say anus on the radio? It's a scientific term, you child. You probably can't say bitches, though. Oh! Anyway, all throughout, Donnie keeps talking to Frank, who by the way, is a giant and terrifying bunny rabbit. Frank tells him to do certain things, and when Donnie tells his therapist all about this, he 
Definitely sounds very psycho serial killer-esque, very son of Sam. Confusing story short, his favorite teacher is fired, his girlfriend dies, he shoots a guy, and the plane that his mother and sister are on crashes. He also burns a pedophile's house down, but that's not exactly a sad event. But what's cryptically revealed is that, by surviving on that very first night when the jet engine crashes into his room, Donnie entered into an alternate universe, or tangent universe, as the movie calls it. And at the end of the movie, he has to sacrifice himself and die in order to restore things to the original timeline. This still makes very little sense. Well, let's break it down a bit instead of whining about it. <sighs> Someone call me a wambulance, please. <laughs> Maybe if I give you the scenes in order, you can tell me what they're trying to say or what concepts are coming into play. You're good at nerd stuff like that. I am good at nerd stuff like that. <laughs> All right, well, to kick things off, the movie starts off normal. Normal kid, normal suburban town, normal uncomfortable family dynamics. Then a bunny calls him outside while a jet engine falls and crushes his room. We understand from our beautiful synopsis that this engine came from a tangent universe, but like, how? Besides a literal propeller propelling the story forward, just why? Okay, the movie is purposely kind of bizarre while you're watching it, and only after we've finished the journey do we understand what happened. Or, more likely, you'll get it after watching the movie a second time. To explain it, we're also going to have to take a more holistic look. Let's talk about the real universe and the tangent universe. Donnie enters into a tangent universe by leaving his room and not being there for the engine crash. But a plane going down in the tangent universe is where the engine came from in the real universe. You dig? Not entirely. Perfect. That's how you're supposed to feel. So, <laughs> by not dying... Donnie created the Tangent Universe, which again, Tangent Universe is a term created in the movie. We can just think of it as an alternate timeline. Oh yeah, because that's so much less complex. And by eventually figuring all this out in the Tangent slash alternate universe and sacrificing himself, he ends that universe and brings us back into the regularly programmed time continuum. But like, why? So we can explore concepts of philosophy and life and meaning and become a cult classic. <laughs> well, I can't argue that it's a cult classic, so I guess I can't argue the other things as well. That's definitely how logic works. So the film explores a lot of concepts of free will and whether that's even a thing. Oh, and we did an episode on that a while back. Episode... Oh, it was two episodes. Episodes five and six, free will and determinism. And determinism is such a huge part of this story. Determinism is the opposite of free will, right? So nothing is actually up to us. We're just puppets fulfilling our roles. Right. Listeners, go check out that earlier episode to get more of a background for this stuff. We'll sum up the main points here, though. Don't you worry. Every episode is self-contained, but the extra background can help tie some ideas and terms together. Plus, you get more time with us, which really helps our respective self-esteems. And wholesome self-esteem relies on that boost. Okay. Okay, 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 he's staring me down. I'm projecting, it's actually me. Mm. My ego needs your love and your attention. But determinism doesn't need you. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> See, determinism says that everything is determined by previous causes. And we understand cause and effect. Determinism takes it to the extreme and says everything is caused by an earlier effect, which in turn is caused by an even earlier effect, and on and on, all the way back to the Big Bang. This is incompatible with free will, which says we are free to go about making our own decisions and choices. Y you know, normal people philosophy. Determinism, on the other hand, says we're kind of locked in a continuous domino effect. 
Imagine a tree outside during this charming autumn weather. Leaves are dying and falling off their branches. We know that they're going to flutter to the ground somewhere near the tree. There are a lot of atmospheric conditions and the breeze that either carries it or not. Hmm. That it all comes together to determine exactly where that leaf will land. But it's nothing mystical or beyond our comprehension, right? Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. Theoretically, if we knew the exact humidity, the exact temperature, the exact wind factor, and the shape of the leaf, and the exact height of the tree from the core of the earth, and all these other variables that we don't know, theoretically, if we did know it all, there's no reason we couldn't calculate precisely where the leaf lands, right? Because it's all cause and effect, and understanding the cause is enough to foretell the effect. I don't understand what the distance from the core of the earth has to do with it. We don't have time to cover that. So... Kansas says we're just dust in the wind. Heathen says we're just leaves in the wind. And in the end, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> okay, Lincoln Park. <laughs> our nature and our nurturing mold us and shape us into who we are. We think and feel like we have free will, but we're entirely determined by these previous events, factors, causes, whatever you call it. According to determinism. Hard determinism, to be specific. The entire lack of choice and free will is called hard determinism. Hmm. They see us as we see a clock. Don't imagine a smartwatch and other fancy tech gadgets, but think of a mechanical clock with all of its intricate gears, sprockets, springs, and doodads working together, impacting one another. I mean, the tiny gears spins quickly and the bigger gears rotate more slowly, but they're all connected to one another, causing each other to act in a long chain. That's how hard determinism sees us. Oh, that makes sense. There are allusions to clocks throughout the movie, and we're told about the passage of time specific to the second, as in when the bunny tells Donnie he has exactly 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. And we keep seeing this big clock in the Darko house. Our actions are just an infinite regress. What did I tell you about throwing out nerd terms like that? This podcast is to simplify. Uh, that's, that's just what I was talking about. The understanding that our decisions and actions are actually caused by earlier causes, which are caused by even earlier causes, on and on all the way back, infinitely regressing. And how does that apply in Donnie Darko? So Donnie is told by Frank to leave his house, which results in him surviving the jet engine crashing into his house, but his survival caused a chain reaction of other terrible events. We mentioned his girlfriend Gretchen dies, his favorite teacher's fired, his mother and sister, and everyone else aboard their plane just dies mm. he's uh maybe an outdated sprocket in that clock that was meant to be removed that plane crash is where the engine came from right it, it's slowly starting to come together and there's a part where donnie sees these strange orbs almost coming out of people like he sees something flowing out of people's chests which is weird but it's actually their future paths we see the orb trail kind of leading Donnie's father off the couch into the fridge, but it's not forcing him to do anything. It's not leading him, really. It's actually just visualizing the determined nature of everything, shining a light on the illusion of free will. I think the film soundtrack calls those liquid spears, like the liquid spear waltz, uh, which sounds, you know, even more intimidating than, than the orbs. Uh, I was always fascinated that even though Donnie can see them, he still follows his, just like everybody else follows there. Donnie even argues that later with his science teacher, even though that teach shuts down the conversation pretty quick because it's a Catholic school and that kind of science is blasphemy. The teacher argues that if you could see your channel, you could deviate. 
So is there anything to back up this hard determinism view of life? I mentioned it in our free will episode, and I'm going to say it again, that it definitely feels like we have free will. Well, what's the alternative? I'm going to introduce a concept to you that is both advanced and simplistic enough that apparently some studio executives at Sony greenlit it for a movie. That's right, I'm talking multiverse theory. Ugh, okay, so I know multiverse theory, but I hate it. But what movie are you talking about? Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you beautiful whiner. Seriously, someone greenlit Quantum Mechanics, but for children, and it won an Oscar. But I digress. It won an Oscar? Yeah, best animated film. Um, From what comic books and other equally unreputable sources have taught me, multiverse theory is that idea that there are nearly infinite possible alternate universes where a different choice was made or a different chance-based event occurred that led to an entirely different but parallel universe being formed. That's right, there's a universe that spawned into existence where you picked the green shirt to wear this morning instead of the blue shirt. There's a universe that popped up where you rolled the dice and won that game of Yahtzee instead of this sucky universe where you lost and your uncle won't let you forget it. (laughs) The possibilities are endless, and that is absolutely staggering. Did I ever tell you that back in school, my friends made a pro wrestling championship style belt, but for Yahtzee? (laughs) What? Did I ever tell you that you're a nerd? You you may have mentioned it. (laughs) (sighs) I kind of don't want to say the next thing I was going to say now. All right, I'm I'm sorry. Tell me. So, multiverse theory is related to the Schrodinger's cat problem. Is that a math rock band? You know how I feel about math rock. Mm, Yep, as negatively as your love for orange juice is positive. Mm. See, Schrodinger's cat is a famous thought experiment. It starts with the idea that you've got a cat in a box. Is this cat alive? Is it dead? Well, how about both? (laughs) What now? That that, that certainly makes no sense. Just like most of Donnie Darko. The concept (laughs) itself gets pretty heady, and my theoretical physics degree got lost in the mail. But there's crazy quantum mechanics stuff going on that says this cat is both dead and alive until you open the box because of how really tiny subatomic particles bounce and whiz and exist in space-time. Subatomic particles can do lots of crazy things all at once until the moment you start to look at them. And this theory kind of helps visualize that. Through cat murder. I may have skipped over some details, but yes, through cat murder. It's certainly more complex than I think any of us are ready for on this podcast, but one of the solutions to how this cat can be both alive and dead is that there's a parallel universe that exists for each possibility. In one universe, the cat lives. In the other, the cat's gone. (laughs) Wipe your hands, leave the building, you scienced, and that's your answer. (laughs) All right, yeah, so I understood maybe none of that, but it seems (laughs) like it's the smarty pants way of tying in multiverse theory, and as a fellow less experienced philosopher, I can respect that. I think back to our episodes on determinism and compatibilism, and it tends to seem pretty hard to argue against determinism, but multiverse, or many worlds theory to use another equally annoying term, seems to create some room for free will. Not only do you have free will, but you create an entire new universe every time you exercise it. So if you ever have to pick between potential dates, you can honestly tell the one you picked that they are your universe. And according to this theory, you'd be both correct and romantic. Which, by the way, is gross. Romance is gross. Can you believe he's still single, ladies? They got the gross, and that's the kind of theory Wholesome can get behind. Hmm. <laughs> uh, a 
Of course, of course. Um, <laughs> so multiverse, uh, this theory implies that there's like a million versions of what you think is the one and only you. So maybe that isn't so cool. No individuality and whatnot. Yeah, not punk rock. And Donnie Darko talks about multiverse, it seems. They mention tangent universes. Okay, if all of this hasn't been weird and nonsensical enough, let's get weirder. It's called the philosophy of time travel. What does philosophy have to do with time travel? Let me see. Guess who wrote it? Ooh, this sounds interesting. Does not exist. There's no such thing as philosophy of time travel. Oh, boo. Boo, we want time travel philosophy. The people demand it. Multiverse isn't real. Time travel isn't real. Social norms aren't real. Morality isn't real. I'm 100% a simulation theory adherent, so we're not even real. Bro, you're going off the deep end. Just talk some time travel stuff at me. (sighs) All right. (laughs) One reason I'm not a big fan of time travel movies is that the entire concept collapses in on itself. Imagine a straight line as representing time. Yeah, it's called a timeline. Yeah, that thing. Usually, a character is at one point on that line, travels back to an earlier point on that line, fixes whatever needs fixing, and re-arrives at their original position down the line. Hmm. But it doesn't make sense, because if they fixed or changed things in the past, then the conditions wouldn't exist in the so-called present that allowed them to go back to fix things in the first place. The logic just folds in on itself. But... But? But the tangent universe in this movie isn't that easy version of time travel. Time travel moves us back along that same line. Multiverse theory says the timeline branches off into separate lines. Tangent universes in this movie, though, are more like a circle lying on top of the line. Or, ooh, or tangential to the line, you may say. Oh, whoa, tangent universe, that clicks. So Donnie leaves the main timeline and enters the tangent universe when he survives the engine crashing into his house. Then he travels within that universe until he fixes it by sacrificing himself, which ends the tangent and brings us right back to the initial departure point from the real universe. It's like a little loop-de-loop. Actually, you know, that that helps make sense of something else, too. This is really small, but in the title card, when they show the movie's name on the screen, I thought it was an odd choice of font, and the Ds in Donnie Darko are oddly circular. Maybe this is why. The Ds loop back on themselves, like the tangent universe loops back onto the timeline. Nothing in this movie feels unintentional. Dude, nothing is unintentional. There's meaning everywhere. Here's some of my signature movie fun facts. At the beginning of the film, Donnie's little sister writes a book called The Last Unicorn, and right before she gets on the plane that kills them, she is holding a unicorn. Ah, yes, unicorns, the national animal of Scotland. Yeah, okay. Donnie burns down the pedophile motivational speaker's house following the instructions of Big Bad Bunny Frank, which is exactly what they do to the mansion, or at least to the money in the mansion, in the book from Donnie's English class, The Deconstructors by Graham Greene. That's cool and all, but I wasn't kidding about unicorns being the national animal of Scotland. Right, of course. Another thing about The Deconstructors is that, functionally, it's an absurdist story, and those absurdist themes get heavily highlighted later on. The short story ends after the kids destroy this old dude's Victorian house and burn 
all his cash instead of taking it, just for the heck of it. When the cleanup crew guy sees the wreckage, he just laughs and is all, you gotta admit, this is pretty funny. (laughs) Donnie later similarly says to a psychiatrist, why spend your whole life debating what comes next? It's absurd. Most importantly, at the end of the film, as the jet engine falls on Donnie, he is laughing, just like the wreckage crew guy. Yeah, you won't be laughing when you realize I'm not joking about this unicorn thing. Oh, and when Donnie talks about that book, he talks about how destruction is a form of creation, which sounds pretty darn philosophical to me. (sighs) Saying profound-sounding things that don't mean anything isn't philosophical. That's more Taoist. Hey, now, be nice. (laughs) In the most famous scene of the film, Donnie and Frank are sitting in a movie theater, and Donnie asks Frank why he wears that stupid bunny suit. Frank responds by asking why Donnie wears a stupid man suit. Hmm, A question I often ask myself. It's a good one. Then, in the climax of the film, Donnie wears a skeleton costume for Halloween. This could be seen as him removing that stupid man suit, as Frank the Bunny likes to call it. I still feel like you don't believe me about the unicorns. Near the end, Donnie almost gets killed by bullies from his high school, but as they run from what they think is the cops, Donnie smirks and says, Deus Ex Machina, which, in writing, is an unexpected event that happens and kind of solves problems when writers write themselves into a corner. It's almost like a hack in a video game. But then Donnie's girlfriend, Gretchen, gets run over and it's all like, oh, not as perfect as you thought, loser. I feel like you don't really need me for this whole section. I'm I'm just going to go get another beer. This one is super purposeful and pretty cool. I mentioned the scene where Donnie, Gretchen, and Frank are chilling in the theater. The Last Temptation of Christ is listed as the second feature playing as they leave. Contrary to what it sounds like, The Last Temptation of Christ is not a traditional Christian film and led to a variety of death threats to the creators. In the film, Christ is tempted by Satan with a vision of the life he could have if he didn't die for people's sins. The film shows him fall in love, get married, make the love, and that he's best pals with Judas, who becomes a close and loyal confidant. He lives that entire life and knows that it's waiting for him, and that the other option is merely pain. But he still chooses to forego his own happiness for the sake of literal humanities. In that sense, Donnie does the same by foregoing this potential future where he gets to live a long life, just to make sure that the tragedies that came with his survival don't come to pass. Even as sleeping with Gretchen shortly after the theater scene is a direct nod to The Last Temptation of Christ film, Donnie gives up his life for everyone else. He then really did leave, so I guess I'm going to continue. There's a great scene that might only be in the director's cut where Donnie and Gretchen work together for a school project. They invent instant memory glasses that they suggest you can give to children to help give them positive early childhood memories and start memory growth earlier. Donnie says something like, Everything before your memories begins is just darkness. To which the teacher responds, Have you ever considered that darkness is a part of development? This line is mega philosophical from an absurdist standpoint in that we don't know the destination and that itself is maybe the most important part of the journey. Okay, I'm back. I'm coining mega philosophical as a term now. Oh, sounds like you've advanced the world of philosophy in my absence. This gets further expanded upon when Donnie has his meltdown with the psychiatrist about being scared of death and seeing Frank the Bunny. The psychiatrist says something akin to, at the end there will only be you and Frank in your memories. So the film further expands on the idea that memory is a fundamental part of identity and that it might be the only part we can know for sure. Oh, dude, identity is a pretty philosophical thing in itself. What makes us us? How much change is required to be a different identity? 
Are we the same person if we don't have memories of being this person? Those are all really fascinating questions. We can talk about that again another time, but one of our earliest episodes, I think, was all about the concept of self. What else you got, my man? <laughs> I've had quite a bit, so I'm going to end on one more thing. Uh, way at the beginning, Frank gives a time and says that is when the world will end. The world certainly doesn't end, but Donnie's does. Is there any reality outside of our own perception of it? Bro, I was just having a conversation about that the other day. We've talked really recently about reality and the merits of it, if being in reality is even all that great. Then, a dear friend brought up to me the idea that we all live in this one reality, but we all have our own individual realities in a way. Think about people of fiercely opposing political convictions. Most people think there's an objective reality, but two people, depending on the news they consume and their understanding of the world, could be living in two completely different realities. And that got me thinking. I mentioned I'm all aboard the simulation hypothesis train, which says we're living in a simulation. We're not in real reality, but even though I believe that, it doesn't change anything about my life. Even if I'm not living in the original reality, everything around me is real enough to me. My actions bear consequences that feel real to me, and even if the actions and consequences and I am all computer code, I'm still impacted by it. Mm. So yeah, reality. Great concluding statement. So yeah, reality. Hey. <laughs> do, uh, do we have enough philosophy in this episode? I feel like we talked about a bunch of stuff, but was there enough real philosophy? The point of focusing on Donnie Darko was to have a bit of a spooky feeling in honor of the greatest holiday of the year, Halloween. So if we're done with that, how about we talk about something a little different? How about the philosophy of horror? Ooh, yes, I am totally on board with that. Love me some horror movies. Horror or terror or creepy? Okay, you can't out-horror me, my friend. I am a horror aficionado. You're drawing the difference that Stephen King talked about. The difference between horror and terror. <laughs> it's my bad for even trying. So, tell us, what's the difference? <laughs> Stephen King talks about three levels of this feeling. There's the gross-out, which comes from disgusting things. That's gore in movies, bloody stuff, decapitated heads, oozing slime, the whole shebang. Then there's horror, which he says is unnatural. Giant spiders, or something grabbing you in the dark. And the worst one, terror. Terror, he says is when you come home and notice everything you own had been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it. You feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. Dude, for real goosebumps. Oh my god. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, okay, let me refresh from that. Okay. So fear obviously serves a really good purpose in our survival, right? It's like pain. Pain is practically the opposite of pleasant, but it's useful. It doesn't feel good, but putting your hand into a fire isn't good for you, so pain makes us drop back. Similarly, fear of something that could cause us harm keeps us away from stuff bad for our survival. But what about fear of stuff that doesn't make sense? Ooh, now you're talking the feeling of creepy crawlies, kind of... A beautiful, terrible middle ground. Middle ground is exactly what it is. Think about a human face, but distorted extra wide. Mm. Or a normal figure, but unnaturally skinny and tall. 
maybe in a business suit and faceless. Or even Frank in Donnie Darko. He's a bunny, which is usually cute and fluffy and adorable, but he's six foot tall, has way more teeth than a bunny should have, and his eyes are pure white with no pupils. That's really unsettling. A weapon poses a threat to you. Bodily fluids, those can transmit diseases. But what's dangerous about a distorted face or a freak rabbit? It's the ambiguity of it. It's not exactly a danger, but it's not normal either, so we can't be sure that it's safe. Part of our brains are triggered into that horror response, but part isn't. And we're left feeling creeped out. Dude, that that reminds me of one of my favorite things in psychology, the uncanny valley. I've mentioned it a a little bit before, but it's the weird feeling we get when something is almost human-like, but not quite. If we see two dashed lines for eyes and a curve for a mouth, that's cute. Absurdly huge eyes and exaggerated features, that's chibi, and it's adorable. Chibi, chibi, I don't really know. On the other end of the spectrum, if we get a perfectly sketched human face or a top-of-the-line CGI, that's really impressive, but... Somewhere between the two ends, when a face is trying to be real but doesn't quite pass the bar, there's a valley where we feel super creeped out. Like porcelain dolls or masks just in general. Oh, yeah. Uh, Unrelated to Uncanny Valley, have you ever found yourself way up high somewhere on a cliff or a bridge or something and had the urge to hurl your phone off? You don't do it, but you get like a strange desire to. I think the youths call that yeeting. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about wanting to yeet my phone, but I'm definitely, I've, I mean, I've definitely felt a desire to jump myself. Well, that's a form of intrusive thought known as call of the void or high place phenomenon. Ah, uh, yes, I've heard of that. Uh, in the original French, I believe they call it l'appel du vide. A, no one cares about the original French, you pompous baguette. <laughs> B, the thinking is that we don't actually want to jump or yeet our phones, and we know that because we've never had suicidal or destructive thoughts before. But when we're up high somewhere, even if we're safe, some survival caution makes us automatically take a step back. Then our brain wonders why we did that if we weren't actually in danger, and it tries to rationalize the two and says, oh, how weird, I must have wanted to jump off. So, in a way, this call of the void intrusive thought that's an unpleasant feeling is actually an affirmation of our will to live. How do you figure that? Even though it feels disturbing, if our rationalizing our actions comes from an instinctual stepping back from danger, then it's all an act of survival. It's an explicit desire to live. That's oddly optimistic for you and kind of comforting. Is people's bizarre love for Pluto also the same idea? Uh, Pluto the planet or Pluto the dog? Pluto is not a planet. This is not a hot take from heathen. Astronomers say it's not, and they're the ones who decide. They were also the ones who said it was to start with, so whatever. I guess you're talking about Mickey's dog. No, I'm talking about the non-planet. Ugh. People never really cared about it, no more than they care about Mercury or Neptune today. But then, when scientists figured out that Pluto is no longer classified as a planet, all of a sudden, people just love Pluto and demand it be a planet like they have any demands to make. Maybe there's some, like, I don't know, like some sort of dissonance between learning as a school child that it's a planet and then being told that it's not people try to reconcile it to and become 
hardcore Pluto apologists. I mean, maybe that's unsettling in some kind of weird way, but that's really not the same thing of horror that we're talking about. <laughs> you don't know what's on Pluto. Okay, that was actually pretty creepy, but I'm going to stop this now before you get some conspiracy theories about what's on Pluto, and we get a call from some agents in black suits with single letters as their names. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this, and write us in at contact at wholesomeandheathen.com. Take care of yourselves, and if you can, someone else too. Wholesome and Heathen do not endorse following six-foot-tall nightmare bunnies into tangent universes. We further do not endorse using them as spirit guides to time travel and have plane engines dropped on your face. Or at least, that's what Heathen told me to say. Frank just wants to say hi. Tell us what anthropomorphic nightmare creature you'd follow into your tangent universe at wholesomeandheathen.com.